You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For the Now media production. One, two, one, two, three, four. You're simply the best, better than all the rest. Those are the words of the late, great Tina Turner song. But it's how we see Null and Void, and it's all thanks to you that we bring you episode 104 of your favourite sports podcast. Every week, we bring you a variety of sports. Tonight's no different. Plus, Andy is having a go on Get a Grip. Additionally, we have a superb guest from the world of rowing. In fact, he's a top umpire. Yet another first for Null and Void. My name is Tony Grundy. And mine's Andy Callahan. Now, Andy, a weekend, as usual, I was doing the cutting of the four and a half lawns, and they needed cutting, but I'm delighted to say that my mower's gone in for servicing. It's needed that for ages, and I've been pushing <laughs> it around the last few weeks, cursing. The language emanating from my four and a half lawns has not been good for the neighbours. But anyway, maybe I should talk about sport. Um, I watched a lot of the uh, final Premier League games and WSL games supplemented, of course, by the playoff games, which are always entertaining and scary for all those directly involved. How about you, Andy? Uh, Very similar. Uh, Spent some time in the garden enjoying the great weather that we've had. And uh, on Sunday afternoon, decided just on a whim to get out for an 18-kilometre hike along the the river and the uh, canal. So that was very, very pleasant in the in the sunshine. But then, yeah, watching a lot of the rugby with the Premiership final, watching the football, the playoffs, a bit of rugby league and a bit of international hockey. Right. Excellent. We'll hear more about that later. Um, football first. Final day of the Premier League. Didn't alter the top four positions, apart from the fact Manchester United finished uh, ahead of Newcastle. But I don't suppose you're too bothered about that, Andy, being in the top four. No, if you'd offered me top four at the start of the season, I'd have bitten your hand off for that after the last couple of years and the Mike Ashley era. I think we can safely say that's well and truly in the rearview mirror now. Yeah. OK, uh, good stuff. Uh, City clearly won it, although there are some people who say if they got the charges of financial irregularities sorted out, would they be penalised this season? And would all of their wins in the league still be with them. I've said before, they're by far the best team, but there are people who definitely can put that other point of view. But undoubtedly, they're winners at this stage. The relegation battle ended in high tension, as ever, with Leeds and Leicester joining Southampton and going down. Everton eventually did enough to get the points to stay up. It was. It always is breathtaking that last period because you could all the games are being played at roughly exactly the same time, and of course these days everybody's tuned in to what's going on. So uh, teams coming up: Burnley, Sheffield United, and finally from the playoffs, joined by Luton Town. I didn't think I'd ever utter that sentence, but anyway, a nice. great story as math, massive decline followed by unlikely success. They're the only team ever to go from the top level, which was Division 1 when it happened, down to non-league and now back up again. Incredible, really, to watch that happen and unfold. And whether you, clearly Coventry City would have a different view, but it was 
so dramatic on 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 the day and i think uh, you know when you look at it their skipper after 12 minutes who's a key player tom sawyer um went down collapsed and was unconscious and was taken off the field and you fear the worst i saw the manager taking the players away from the mm. guy on on the stretcher because they did they were really really worried and later he was seen in his hospital bed conscious and cheering as they as they finally won but to to come from that situation to pull that round i think they did very well indeed and wish him a, a, a speedy recovery he's a welsh international player but he's not going to play in the international matches coming up they'll give him time to rest and recover and i don't quite know the, the full story on that yet and clearly uh, the medical tests day. yeah yeah, um, uh, Pochettino, uh, Pochettino has been now officially made the manager of Chelsea. We always seem to be saying somebody's been made the manager of Chelsea, but Pochettino has now. And I guess with his reputation, he'd be expecting to turn that around. But I might say to him, <laughs> buyer beware, have a look. I, I mean, it's only a, it's only a rumour, but I've heard a rumour that they're installing on the uh, manager's office just a revolving door to make it... <laughs> Quicker and easier. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that, that's that's fair enough. And we'd work out, actually, it's a number of clubs in the Premier League. <laughs> um, I, I watched w, uh, WSL, the final games there. Chelsea made it four consecutive WSL wins. Manchester United chased them all the way, finishing second. But they, it's a worthy Chelsea team, there's no doubt about it. Massive experience in that team. Very well-managed team. Uh making them winners, of course, the double of League and FA Cup. Uh, what have I got next? Rugby Union. You've got plenty on that, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was as I said, it was the Premiership final at Twickenham on Saturday, Saracens against Sale. And uh, unbelievably, this was the first time Saracens had um, won a trophy when they won for something like five, five years because of their time on the naughty step and then... Um, the, the demotions, sorry, four years, four years without a trophy, uh, their time on the naughty step because of the financial irregularities and payments to players that breached the salary cap and then a season in the lower division as a result. But they've come back, um, cracking game, absolutely immense in the uh, in the heat, in the sunshine and great game. Sale had managed to get their noses ahead midway through the second half. Um, but that Saracens team, uh, uh, they're so precise and clinical that if you give them even a sniff of a chance they'll take it and they did with some really well worked tries so they won the game 35 25 it was marred by protests from the stop oil protesters running on and uh chucking their orange paint about um one of them a doctor who seemed to think it was a great idea to run on and chuck paint whilst two players were receiving quite urgent and quite serious medical attention for injuries that happened. So um, I think we I've shared my views on these idiots before. Um, I think the more they start to do this sort of thing, the uh, the more that waterboarding seems like a, a positive solution in my book. <laughs> but um, yeah. uh, but I, I think the, the Saris and Sale fans, especially the Sale fans, uh, good, tough Northerners, took a different approach and they were throwing their pints of beer at these protesters as they were being dragged off, which 
I mean, it makes me think, is there not a cost of living crisis in the north? Tony, you, you're up from the uh, sale part of the world originally. Is there not a cost of living crisis? Because it's £8 a pint at Twickenham and they were all throwing them. Wealth, wealthy part of the country sale, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, it yeah. seems to be if they're chucking away £8 pints of beer at these protesters. But yeah, um, so can't, can't quite see the logic of that. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then also in Rugby Union, uh, the retirement announced this week of uh, Vicky Fleetwood from the England women's team. Um, she's played for Saracens in England, uh, retiring because of a long-term knee injury that kept her out of the World Cup in the autumn last year. But she retires having played for England 82 times, was part of the team that won the 2014 World Cup in France, um, and also a Commonwealth Games bronze medalist in the 2018 Games for England Sevens, and then has won the England women's domestic title three times with Saracens. So definitely a serial winner and a real shame to see her having to finish her career maybe a few years earlier than intended because of that knee injury. Um, and also announcing his retirement today from the Welsh Rugby Union squad, another veteran, that's three in two weeks from uh, the Welsh team, um, is Reese Webb the scrum half, who got brought back in. He was left out by Wayne Pivak uh, for the last couple of years, but brought back in for this year's Six Nations by Warren Gatlin. But he's announced his retirement and dropped out of the Welsh World Cup training camp. Not sure what's going on there, because, you know, to <laughs> lose one veteran could be considered unfortunate, but to lose three is just careless. Um, so I'm not sure what's going on with the retirement of Alan Wynne-Jones, Justin Tipperick and now Reese Webb. Not sure what's happening in the camp there or what what what's going on. So I think there'll be mm. more to come from this. Watch this space. Okay. Um rugby league. Yeah. So golden point games are a rarity in the Super League. So if in even in the regular season, if a game is a draw at full time in regular time. They go into sudden death extra time where the first point wins. They're quite a rarity. And then just like London buses, two came along at once this weekend. <laughs> so um, on Friday night at Headingley, Leeds and Saints were tied at 12 all before a drop goal by Saints halfback Lewis Dodd won it for uh, St. Helens in uh, golden point time, extra time. And this was just 24 hours after a Liam Farrell try had taken Wigan to a golden point win over Hull Kingston Rovers. And that win brings Wigan back to within two points of tabletoppers Warrington mm. after their surprise 30-12 defeat to Lee. And then poor old Wakefield still winless at the bottom after 13 games following their 36-6 defeat to the Catalans. So things not getting any better or any easier for Wakefield at the moment. But at the top... Warrington and Wigan really battling it out. Okay. Um, brief mention of tennis, because obviously uh, it's underway at uh, Roland Garros. Um, and it started on Monday. And as we record, it's being played now. But just to say, Djokovic and Swiatek are through, uh, as you could probably expect. But one uh, player, Daniel uh, Medvedev, um, is out. And he went out to a qualifier who's ranked 170 in the world. Uh, I think Medvedev 
hadn't played on clay before and he probably wished he hadn't. But he he's pushing for a top four ranking. That won't have helped him at all. An interesting side point so far was Cameron Norrie. Um, he was actually penalised for hindrance. And I thought, what, what does that mean, hindrance? And apparently it's if you in some way make a noise or shout or whatever to deliberately put off your opponent. Uh, it's very rarely used. And in fact, Cameron Norrie, although he won the match, was furious because he said that's the first time that's ever happened. And he said, in fact, all I did was grunt and my opponent wasn't sure whether he'd done something wrong, um, but it was given as a hindrance. I've never heard that term before. Mm. I mean, no. And when you when you think that a lot of the players, especially in the women's game, there seems to be a lot of that sort of grunting and like vocal, yeah. at, at the serve and at the hit, you know. So, um, yeah, never, never seen it given before, but maybe that could be the start. It's always been one of those annoyances to me, the the grunting and yelping no, during yeah. the game. So maybe this could be a way of them uh, ironing it out of the game. Well, we're, we're talking to an umpire later, but uh, Cameron Norrie was very critical in saying, how come the umpire, there's no recompense for the umpire when he makes a mistake? Because uh, he said all he did was grunt. So there you go. These things happen. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be more that will come out of uh, Roland Garros over the next few days. Brief mention on golf as well. The American Open is now on the horizon, but already Tiger Woods has withdrawn. He's had surgery on his ankle already and he's slower recovery than expected. And I guess he's just got to be very careful with everything that's gone on with him. But he will be a big gap in the tournament. Mm. Now, ultra marathon running. Quote from uh, the person that did this. It's a record, a world record. Physically, I felt great. They're the words of American athlete Candice Burt after complete, completing 200 ultramarathons in 200 consecutive days. I could read that again because I hardly believe it myself, but she's waiting for the ratification of the world record for Guinness Book of Records. The previous number of consecutive days by a woman was 22. She ran a total this is Candice, ran 6,436 miles in the 200 days. And that's 32 miles a day. And one day after she'd done that, she decided she'd have a little canter around and do a 26.2 marathon. Oh, um, just, just knock out a marathon at the end of it, yeah. Well, you know, just as you do, because you're a bit bored. I, amazing. I mean, but that's wait, awaiting ratification, but... You know, when you talk about the body recovering from uh, endurance, yeah, that's fantastic. So there you go. That's the name uh, to conjure with, Candice Burt, American. And a, a world record, we're, we're always talking about world records on this uh, podcast, a shot put world record. Well, shot put world record holder, Ryan Krauser, the, Amer uh, the Olympian um, champion, has smashed his own record with a throw of 23.56 metres in the Los Angeles Grand Prix this weekend, smashing his own world record 
of 23.37. Krauser said the 19 centimeter improvement was due to a new improved throwing technique. <laughs> He's beating his own records there, but a world record nevertheless, so fantastic. Okay, uh, what about F1 and Monaco? And the, is it same old, same old? Uh, it was wet, very wet, and yeah. then even more wet. Uh, so Max Verstappen beat Fernando Alonso in the rain in Monaco, but um, Aston Martin seemed to make a bit of a wrong call by uh, giving Alonso slick tyres, which are those with less tread for the, and work better in the dry, as the rain got heavier, only to then have to bring him into pit stop again one lap later to put him onto intermediate tyres. And then the chance of any advantage of him being able to make ground or time while Verstappen pit stopped basically was, was gone because of yeah. that. So, um, you know, a bit of, bit of a... Bit of a bad call there by Aston Martin, but at the same time, Verstappen had been driving very well, and you know, early on looked as though he was going to win it at a canter before before these sort of tactical calls and changes came into play. Um, and that means that with Sergio Perez's 16th place finish, it now leaves Verstappen 39 points ahead of his Red Bull teammate in the championship. So Verstappen mm -hmm. number one. And then 39 points behind is uh, Sergio Perez in second place. Okay, I've got cricket next on my list. Plenty there as well. Yeah, so we're well into um, T20 with the Vitality Blast and the Charlotte Edwards Cup domestically. But I think all eyes are turning to Lords this week for the start of the first test. Uh, we're recording on... Wednesday, so it'll, it'll start 11 o'clock tomorrow morning at Lords for England against Ireland, which will be um, Ireland's uh, only second test match against England um, after their first four years ago. Um, and then where they skittled England on the first morning for, I think it was 85, 86. Uh, so England went on to win quite convincingly, but a really good performance there by Ireland, uh, certainly in the first innings. And um, a 92 by Jack Night Watchman Jack Leach bailed England out of trouble in the second inning. So be interesting to see. I think uh, Josh Tung, uh, the Worcester bowler, looks like he'll be making his debut as England maybe wrap up James Anderson and Ollie Robinson, who have been struggling with some injuries, wrap them in cotton wool ahead of the Ashes series, which starts in a couple of weeks' time. And then in the IPL... Uh, the Chennai Super Kings rounded off their season with a win. The final was delayed from uh, Monday to yesterday due to rain. And, uh, yeah, finally played uh, yesterday. And, um, yeah, uh, Chennai beat Gujarat on Duckworth-Lewis method by five wickets. So, uh, yeah, a rain-affected final there in the Indian Premier League. Okay. Um Netball next. I've been following it quite closely this season, and it's the final games. Um, London Pulse have confirmed their top spot, regardless of the couple of games that still can follow this week, giving them a home tie in the semi-finals against Surrey Storm. The other two semi-finalists, Loughborough and Manchester, will decide who's home advantage after this weekend's final matches. So that's Manchester Thunder against Loughborough Lightning. Thunder and Lightning. 
Get it? I, I, way, very, very frightening. Way ahead of you, way ahead of you. Anyway, the grand final will take place on June the 11th at the Copper Box. So looking forward to that. Should be a great one, whoever is through there. Um, I've got cycling next, Andy. Yeah, what an exciting finale to the uh, Giro d'Italia at the weekend. So Geraint Thomas went into Saturday's time trial in the Malia Rossa um, with a 26-second lead over Primo Roglic. Uh, but Roglic then won the time trial by 40 seconds to take the win and the title, um, despite his chain coming off during that time trial. So he had a technical and still managed to... Uh, finish 40 seconds ahead which gave him a 40 a 14 second lead at the end of saturday and the the final day of the the grand tour event so the tour de france giro d'italia vuelta de spagna is always traditional that it's more of a processional you don't at attack the leader um on the final day so uh yeah that meant that roglic had snatched the win from Thomas in that time. But as he was going up, the last couple of um, kilometres of, of the time trial were a brutal climb. Some of the sort of angles on the TV cameras sort of defied logic, watching them cycling at the speed they were going up there. And of course, uh, Roglic is Slovenian, and the finish in Italy was only a couple of kilometres away from the Slovenian border. So the, the Slovenian fans had piled in to watch that race and he says it gave him an extra burst of power during the finish of that time trial with the, the cheering and the noise that the fans were making. It, it was quite something to watch. Um, but then also uh, in the final stage, coming into Rome, obviously there was still a stage win there for the sprinters and just 72 hours after announcing that he'll be retiring at the end of the season, Mark Cavendish showed that there's life in the old dog yet as the 38-year-old won the final stage in a sprint finish to add another stage win to his career total overall. And obviously that sets him up nicely, hopefully for the Tour de France in um, a couple of months' time where he just needs one more stage win to take the record outright on his own from that he at the moment shares with Eddie Merckx the most number of Tour de France stage wins. So hopefully over that three weeks in July, uh, Cav, the Manx missile, can get that one more stage win to take the record for himself. But definitely a great win on Sunday. Excellent. Um, final sport tonight, and was again, great range tonight. Um, hockey. What have you got there? Yeah, so it's the... Um, Next round of the FIB Pro League, um, which are the international tournament, and there it's of there the games are set up in blocks at different stages throughout the year in different venues. So they've been taking place the men's and women's at the Lee Valley Olympic site uh, last weekend and this weekend. So last weekend, uh, Great Britain's men went to the top of the table after beating India and Belgium. Uh, the Belgians also beat India in that round of games. Uh, the women's team are currently in fifth place in the table. They beat China but lost to Belgium. And the Belgians also beat China women in that round of games. And then the reverse of those fixtures will be played this weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, 
again in London. So uh, before it then moves on to the next block of games later on in the summer. So, yeah, um, great. Two wins for the British men. One win and one loss for the women. But hopefully, if they can turn things around with two wins this weekend, I think it moves them potentially up to third in the table. Okay. The next thing I've got is get a grip. And probably it's a subject that both of us could talk at the same time about, but you've got the privilege. And and I know it's something that's annoyed you throughout the football season. So uh, fire away, mate. Yeah, people would say, why is Andy talking about football when that's normally Tony's specialist subject? Well, I've got a rant. And as I've said before on here, having a weekly rant on Get a Grip is much cheaper than therapy. So here we go. So it's it's about the assistant referees and them not flagging what are blatant offsides. Previously called linesmen, lineswomen, now assistant referees. And the directive that came in when VAR, again, it all goes back to VAR. How many times this season have we mentioned that wretched uh, contraption? But when VAR came in, the laws were changed to tell the assistant referees to delay raising the flag when they feel that an offside has been committed to avoid having a goal-scoring chance being stopped due due to human error. We've seen it in the past where the the assistant referee is flagged and then actually it wasn't and a goal could have been scored. So they were doing that and they were delaying and delaying and delaying and watching play go on and then either a goal would be scored or not and then it'll then they put the flag up about 5 10 15 seconds later and it would all go back to VAR for checking and because it's a matter of fact it could be checked by the people in the VAR truck it didn't need the referee to go over and look at it on the little iPad on the side of the pitch this season, the directive was changed because so many people, fans, managers, players, other officials, were getting frustrated by those delays on clear and blatant offsides. To And the, the directive, word for word, is to only delay in cases where there is both a clear goal-scoring opportunity and the call is a tight one. So if the chance isn't obvious or the official feels sure of offside, then they will flag immediately, is the wording. Well, it seems to me that a number of these assistant referees have missed this directive and not got the memo, because the amount of delays watching games this season, it's got worse. To the point of the weekend where there were two or three times in that Leeds v Tottenham game, the game I watched on Sunday, where there was a clear offside or absolutely no goal-scoring opportunity and the assistant referee still didn't put the flag up until the move petered out. The frustration. And then on Monday in the playoff final, there was one instant where Sheffield Wednesday was so far offside and the assistant referee still didn't flag that even the Owls' famous supporter and former Home Secretary, David Blunkett, could probably have told that it was an offside decision <laughs> and put the flag up before the assistant referee did. It was that far offside. And yet they still delay. So it's just follow the wording of the edict. I appreciate if it's tight or if a goal might be scored, a clear goal scoring opportunity. And there's there's the real sort of essence of that wording, a clear goal scoring opportunity or that it is um, blatantly offside, then by all means delay. But if it's 
clearly offside or there's they're running toward the corner and there's no goal scoring opportunity, get your flag up and get a grip. I think there's a few people might go with you on that one. Um, listening to some of the pundits as well, they're not very happy with it. So, well said, that man. Right. Next up, should we introduce our guest? Yeah. Yeah, looking forward to this. Yeah. Now, our guest tonight was first brought to our attention via Mike Dinsdale, our guest talent spotter, as we can call him. Um, over the months of Null and Void, we've had a number of rowers as guests. We haven't, though, ever had a rower who is a coach, a rowing coach, and is also a qualified umpire. Good combination. So I'm delighted to welcome Patrick Lockley as a guest tonight. Welcome to Null and Void, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Welcome and pleased to be here. Yeah, thank you for being with us. Now, Patrick, you've, you've you, when I look across the detail of what you sent, you've been involved in, in the sport of rowing for many years. Where did that love of that sport first come from? Can you think back that far? <laughs> uh, very easy, actually. Um, I went to King's School, Worcester. Uh, there wasn't a lot of choice in terms of sport. I played rugby there. I rowed there. Uh, I avoided playing cricket because uh, my hand-eye coordination... Uh, for small ball, ball sport really doesn't work very well. Uh, but I did have the pleasure of going to the county ground and you can tell how old I am, of watching Basil D'Oliveira play in the shadow of the cathedral. And it's a great place to start any sort of sport. So rowing at school and then rowing on and off through the rest of my life until I got into the uh, my 40s when you get that sudden realisation that um, and part of training, the requirement to do a 2K erg test, at the end of which one feels, one, extremely ill, two, sick, and probably falls off the erg in the process. And you suddenly think, Patrick, why are you doing this? And you, the answer is simply, um, because you're mad. Uh, there, are better <laughs> ways, there are better ways that you can utilise your time. And I'd already done a certain amount of overrowing coaching, and that's when I moved across into a coaching row um, and then got through the qualification process and all this sort of thing. Uh, worked for a time even for what was then the Amateur Rowing Association, now British Rowing. Uh, qualified as an umpire when I was in the Northwest because I was based uh, in uh, Wigan. Uh, and great town. Uh, if you want to eat a pie, Wigan is the place to go. It's just amazing. Ah, uh, we've got a story there about when there were no pies in Wigan, Patrick, from uh, one of our previous podcasts when I was up there for the Rugby League World Cup game and these two Leeds fans behind me were very unimpressed. They went to get a pie and they'd sold out and they just came back with, oh, well, come all this way and there's all you hear is pies in Wigan and now there's no effing pies in Wigan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that comes in the category of a major crisis between Lancashire and Yorkshire, I'd have thought, to say the <laughs> least. In the same way, we were in, my wife and I were in a fish and chip shop in Wigan, in the queue, and in front of us was a South African rugby league player. Okay, so you've got a guy with a South African accent, you had a fish and chip man with a Lancashire stroke Italian accent, and he asked for cotton chips, mushy peas, usually. 
and we had to have a third person translate the order between the <laughs> South African and the Lancashire <laughs> Italian. And, all, and there was about five of us in there all say, no, no, what he wants is cod and chips and mushrooms. No, he doesn't want mushrooms. Yes, he does. Anyway. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. The pie eaters. Anyway, so you spent time in, in Wigan. Happy days. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. And then I came back down, uh, left the British rowing, um, then came back down south. I, I, I mean, I've coached all over. I've coached at UCL in London, coached colleges in Oxford. I've just spent this last week uh, firing cannons uh, in Oxford for summer eight, uh, which is seriously good fun, albeit a little noisy. And had the joy of four extremely sunny days. Got sunburned, which is the first time that's happened for a while. Uh, whilst I'm now back here in France, I'm looking out the window and it's pouring with rain and we've just had a thunderstorm. So from one extreme to the other. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, would, you, you, would you say, because you eventually became a, 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 an umpire, would you say the combination of skills, i.e. being a rower yourself, then a coach, and then an umpire. Does that make you a very good umpire because of that, or or what? I mean, you can argue um, way, I guess. I, certainly having been a rower is important. Having been a coach, um, rather less so, to be honest. Um, there is nothing terribly complicated about row, uh, rowing, rowing umpiring on a multi-lane course. Because most of the time you sit in the launch behind the race and just bumble backwards and forwards, and it's all between lanes. The difficult ones are um, bank umpiring, where you've got to visualise you're standing on a bank and a crew is coming in from your right at an angle, and the only time you can tell whether the two crews, which crews ahead, is when they're opposite you, and then they go away from you. And of course, the angle business comes into play. And of course, the rivers aren't straight. You go to Budley, for instance, and it's bends. Um, so you're having to equate all that. So that's tricky. Uh, being a coach is not going to add anything to that. Being a row and understanding why people are operating, rowing, where they are rowing, on the other hand, can be important. But it's... So, uh, it's go on. So just, just help me. I mean, I, I have road a long long time ago in a galaxy far far away in my school days um and then unfortunately everyone else grew upwards and went on to be even better shape for rowing i grew outwards and promptly got moved into the front row in the rugby team and stayed yeah. there forever um so what is it that an umpire does patrick on a on a sort of a race event or on a race day Okay, we just first of all, you need to divide rowing into basically two categories. The, the top level is multi lane, which is 2000 meters. It's absolutely dead straight. There's sets of boys between the lanes. You set off six crews, they tootle off for however long it takes to get to the other end. And so, another umpire at the other end makes a judgment who came first, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Then there's Bank umpiring, which is Bugley, St. Neots, you know, all over the country, Sudbury and Suffolk, which is truly wonderful, um, because there's an almost right-hand bend halfway down the course, which does add a certain piquancy to getting around it. There you've got a series of umpires staged up the bank where they try to optimise the view each umpire has got. 
So someone will start the race. The first umpire along the course will then take control of what's going on. So we'll be issuing uh, instructions to a crew to say, let's um, Derby uh, move to your left or move to port. Um, Wallingford move to starboard to try and keep them separate and not clash because obviously there's no point in clashing because that ruins it for everybody. He then has to, as I said, the angle's a bit odd because they're coming at an angle on his left. They're opposite him. They're off an angle. And then he's got to pass on to the next umpire down on the line by radio who may be on the same side or may be on the other side of the river. And so he goes down the race until eventually somebody crosses the finish line. Hopefully they both cross the finish line. Uh, and the finish judge says, you know, Derby, you're the winners, and so and so. There is the business that when they do clash, you have to make a judgment as to who is responsible and liable. And you do have the capacity, if you wish to do so, to disqualify a crew if you consider their behaviour has led to, what well, I'd say, an unsportsmanlike process being the point. Um, we in, my wife is also an umpire, and we umpired at Chester Regatta some years ago. And Chester Veterans 8 were out and basically T-bone their opposition. Mm. Um, with the best will in the world, that's not really acceptable behaviour, ignoring the damage to person and boats. Um, mm. So uh, she disqualified them. The joy was that we then got a message from race control saying, um, you do realise it's the host club? Yes. Uh, you do realise it's the Veterans 8? Yes. Are you sure you want to disqualify them? And so she said, yes, of course I do. They've just T-boned their opposition. They can't do that. And the, the laconic reply was, we'll send security down for you and they'll stay with you till you come back. Crikey. <laughs> I, was, I was actually going to say, Patrick, it, the dark arts, one of the things must be that, you know, people will push the rules as far as they possibly can. And that, again, comes under the responsibility of the umpire to call, does it? Absolutely. It's the same as any sport. Everybody is trying to, to make an edge on, on where they are. Uh, Multi-lane, it's actually quite difficult to do because it is so constrained and so controlled. And anything you do wrong is... is a, but you will get... I mean, I uh, had a, a group of friends who, you know, crew from the city of Oxford, who had a very good psychological approach to... Um, bending things in their favour, which was very often you would row up to the start with your opposition. So you'd be quite close together and then you'd park above the start and you'd turn and you'd sit almost along by, side by side. Uh, and Dickie and the rest of them were very ones would engage the opposing crew in conversation. Mm. And they'd tell jokes to one another and, you know, it was very activated, hard laughing. And then the, the start umpire would say, OK, City of Oxford and... Um, Thames uh, come down to the start and the city of Oxford Floor had the capacity just to switch and could just totally focus on the start mm -hmm. and it was probably worth a quarter of a length of every start because their opposition was still oh that's a good joke ho ho and, and what a lot of nice guys these are actually they were total bastards because they've just screwed you <laughs> over good and proper, and have gone away by quarter leg. And they did it every single time. And they were very good at it. I mean, they were good rows anyway, but, you know, that psychological edge. And did so no one ever tweak? <laughs> Sorry? 
Did no one ever twig that they were doing well, this? Well, see, there's, there's nothing actually illegal about it. No. There's nothing actually wrong. And, you know, isn't it nice when you go on, trot onto the rugby pitch even and you and you see your mates on the, in the opposition, you chat, hi, James, how are you doing? Oh, Jimmy, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. But then you play against them. You know, but the whole business of this switch of focus was just amazing. Uh, what you're into there is obviously sports psychology. And I know you studied that and, and incorporated that into your experiences. But, you know, if if you take the football bonus where, say, for instance, when penalties are being taken, mm. you know, the, the games that people get up to there, taking the ball that you've just scored with to the next penalty taker and giving him the ball, you know, you can't hear what's being said at that point. You know, there's no way you're going to be scoring. There's a ball, aren't I a nice guy? And again, nothing in the rules that says you can't no. do that, but no. it's gamesmanship, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I mean, uh, the, the whole business of cricket, the sledging and the rest of it, you know, it, it's always been there. I mean, Douglas Jarman, I'm sure, got sledged in his year. W.G. Grace, or very politely, probably got sledged as well. It's always been there. The, the the point is, from a coach's point of view, is setting up a crew or a team to be able to deal with it and counteract it. So part of you can reverse the psychology, if you like, and play it back on themselves. It's I mean, I'm amazed that every single major team in any sport doesn't have an in-house sports psychologist as a matter of course. Mm. When you Absolutely. look at how sport comes down to those, you know, at that top level, those minuscule percentages. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, the, and the whole joy, and to me, a lot of it, things like the visualisation, the time I spent with crews, and we sat and gone through races. Where we, I did it with the army at Henley, where we, we've gone to races and we've been sitting in a room in the dark, just working our way down the course, knowing what this is, what this looks like, what that looks like, watching the film. This is what happens if we're down. This is what we feel like if we're up. Uh, the army are very easy in some ways because you go into the enclosures at the end of the Henley course and those of the crowd in the enclosures who are actually watching the road, which can be a minority at times, minor bugbear there, which we'll come back to later, um, is that they look at two crews and one is... Thames and one's the army and there is a natural association that says this is our army this is the British army so the um, floating voter floating spectator will support and applaud the army and I said when you go into the enclosure you need to break a little and just listen for that because there's perhaps 600 people there that want you to win Mm. use it yeah yeah and it and it works uh, and <laughs> we also did the thing about visualization about what kind of animal are you and we had a long discussion about this and i said okay so what animal do you see yourself being in terms of the carnivore attack approach and trying to kill off opponents and we went through lions, lionesses. Well, lionesses are fine, but they're all female, we're all male. That's, no, so it's not about the sex, it's what do they do? They cooperate and work together, take down animals and kill them. The fact that the male lion then trundles up and takes it off them is just fundamentally unfair. 
And then we said, but if you were doing the Boston Marathon, which is another rowing event, same sort of distance as a, a normal marathon, what animal are you there? Anyway, the discussion goes on. And we said, actually, we're wolves, because, again, we are still operating as a cooperative group, but we're going on at the same rate for miles and miles and miles and miles. Mm. And to me, it's a great pleasure and getting guys to, uh, to look at themselves interpret and understand themselves and then to be able to use that knowledge to go faster. Uh, and as you said, the, the problem is, I mean, at the international level, you are literally talking about two seconds in a race. And the, I'm sure British rowing, the, the internationals now, know how fast the women's eight has got to go at the Paris Olympics to win. They'll know that now. And they will only be conditions are, are on the lake dependent, probably two or three seconds either way. That's, and it's that time. Mm. Uh, you talk about British rowing, and, and obviously if you talk about established organisations, you could describe British rowing as, as, as that. One of the things that's come up recently in relation to rowing and many other sports, cycling this week has come up with a policy, but that of transgender. And British rowing's policy at the moment, um, compared to, well, they've just had a vote, haven't they, with the membership that they haven't released the information from. And they've said, we're going to discuss that, not come up with a decision, um, in terms of what our attitude will be from mid-September, which is after the major yeah. events of the next few weeks. What, what's your uh, skew on that? It's, I think you have to start by, first of all, saying, you have to accept for certain people, it's a very emotive issue. It's a difficult issue. On the other hand, if you look at it from a physiological point of view, the transition of women to men, I don't actually think is a problem. Uh, rowing has always had, as far as what they call women's events and open events. So I could take a women's crew and race in a men's event in any British rowing event across the country. The other way around, I think, is more difficult. And this is purely a personal thing. One of the issues, too, is that if you look at the way people grow, one of the things that males do is you get broad shoulders from quite an early age. And by the time you hit puberty with the testosterone and all the rest of it, you can't reverse that. You are physically what you are. And in many sports, the, 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 soul, the shoulder girth, and certainly applies to rowing, is a crucial factor. You, thin, skinny, no shoulders is difficult. So going the other way around, if you, um, to me, I think you've got to say, if you're going from male to female, then you've got to stay in the male events. If you're going from female to male, it doesn't matter. It's, it is a tricky issue. And also, I think we also have to remember the numbers involved in, across all sports are actually very, very small. Yeah. Um, and I can understand that it currently it's a, it's, a, it's a big theme and it's a difficult theme, particularly difficult for the athletes themselves. But I can also see that, and, and one I, I thought about, I can't remember the name, was in the weightlifting at the last Olympics where a guy had transitioned and won. And you look at it and you think, that's 
if I was a female athlete in that, I would not have been happy. No. Because yeah. the physical advantage that he had from an early age, you can't take it away. It's it's always there. Yeah. And it's not, you say the numbers are, are low with the general or the gender thing that is discussed at 10 year olds in school and so on. I mean, surely the numbers are going to become greater. I mean, I'm, I don't know, I'm no authority, but is that likely to happen? And therefore, is it always going to be a problem? And now it's, is the time to have some policy that takes that into account? I think it, it, it's a very difficult issue because uh, I think in many ways, the, the, the fact that it's very public, the fact that it is out in the open, in one way is a benefit. The downside is that it becomes um, almost a way to go. And in, encouraging people to say, I'm not comfortable with my body, absolutely fine. No. But I, I, I'm aware of one person that I know who transitioned from female to male, um, and you just can't help feeling at the age she was, now he is, um, it was a bit rushed and did the psychologist and psychiatrist really probe deeply enough whether other issues going on that had absolutely nothing to do with transitioning at all. I don't know. It is just so complex. And at the moment, I think, so messy. One would have hoped that through all the national bodies, there's something to be said that the rowing, football, everybody needs to get together to say, we are going to have, and the IOC, one concerted, simple approach that covers every sport, every situation. And I'm sure that some people will feel disappointed and left out, but you've got to go simply with the majority. And I'm slightly despaired the fact that it seems to be jumbling along to different sports bodies rather than being a concerted soul say, look guys, get together, we need to sort it and sort it now. Mm. Yeah, Patrick, I appreciate you you talking on the subject because lots of people are, are kind of ducking the issue, and I'm sure from a null and void listener's point of view, they're grateful for your input on that. Let's change the switch the subject, and coming up is Henley Regatta. That's local to us here, Andy and I. Um, yeah. Have you been involved in that on many occasions? Uh, I, yeah, I've, I've taken crews there, mainly army crews to Henley. Um, I'm, I must admit, I'm not a great Henley fan. Uh, <laughs> um, for, for a number of reasons. Um, one, uh, to be fair, Henley Royal Regatta contributes an awful lot of money to British Royal. So there's a lot of good in it. But there is something where it says, uh, unless I've changed it recently, on the programme, we're still getting weights in pounds and ounces. Well, excuse me. We went metric years and years ago. The course is the wrong length. And by the time you get to Sunday, where the gaps between races, there's enough for you to go off, have a bath, make several cups of tea, and have a four-course lunch. It's, from a, to a spectator, if you want to go to Henley, go on Wednesday. One, because the poorer crews are there, so the chances of there being an incident actually goes up. It's a bit like F1. You know, we love the racing, but actually 
we hate to say it, if we have a crash, we do enjoy the occasional crash. Yeah. <laughs> and so Henley, go on Wednesday, lots of racing, lots going on, all the tents and things are all there already. Um, you know, you can if you've got uh, Stuart's tickets, you can get into the enclosure, do what so many of them do, is spend their time with their backs, drinking pims to the racing, which really intensely irritates me because I think it's very disrespectful to the athletes concerned. Mm. Or sit in a jet chair on one occasion, fast asleep when the racing is going past, which I find equally rude. And you think you could pack so much more racing in. You could have disabled racing in, you know, paraplegic in, all this sort of stuff, all in those four days. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it's five days, make fun. Um, and have something that's really great and makes a big contribution to selling marketing rowing as a sport to everybody. But there's far too many people uh, tottering in six-inch heels up the towpath. Um, that's not the men. Well, it might be some of the men, for all I know. So people generally tottering up in high heels. In, and you think, oh, come on. And if you want to watch serious rowing, you go to Metropolitan Regatta, you go to national championships something like that where it's serious and the athlete is important uh, i always get the feeling with hrr that um, the crowd's important and my, my blazer is important and the badges i wear are important um and the sport happens to be there almost coincidentally bit of a sideshow almost yeah so flip flipping that round patrick where mm -hmm. is it that you've enjoyed officiating or coaching the most which events or which venue Oof. that's really difficult um umpiring my favorite event odd enough is Sudbury and Suffolk nobody's heard of it apart from a few people who actually live in East Anglia but <laughs> you go to Sudbury which is Gainsborough's town it's a small river which when you drive onto the water meadow you look across the water meadow and think Where's the river? I can't see it until you get to the edge. And it's just wide enough to get two boats side by side, but only just. And then you get what happens is they group a set of boats up together. They paddle down as a group. So perhaps eight crews will go down to the start, go above the start, turn around, get themselves sorted and race back up because you, there's no two way traffic. You can only go one way. And you come off the start and uh, there's a nice, uh, from a oarsman's point of view, uh, left-hand bend, which you have to get round. And it's not an easy bend to the extent that when they race the eights, they have to start the eights on the other side of the bend because the eights can't get round. It's too sharp. <laughs> and uh, I've had uh, been down on start when I've seen grass snakes climbing over the the stern canvas of a boat and swimming across and it is just thoroughly thoroughly enjoyable it's just mm. everybody's enjoying it people who know nothing about rowing will wander down from town and think this is fun and that's to me is what sport should be how More do you seriously. negate the advantage of the bend um stagger star okay it's a stagger star um, which also creates problems in itself. But anyway, uh, because there's always somebody who says, I'm not quite sure the stagger's quite right. 
But you know, they've been doing it for years, and it's the same staggered start it's been since you know Methuselah was around. So it, it can't be all bad. So there's that level, and there's also levels that uh, Landaff, Wales, Cardiff, two day regatta, so Saturday and Sunday. Um, I rode there on several occasions, and there is something about rowing on Sunday with a blinding hangover <laughs> that, that suddenly makes you realise, I'm not really sure whether I'm going to get to the end without chucking up over the side, but the only advice to that is I actually haven't eaten anything this morning because I took one look at breakfast and I couldn't face it. And there's the thing that says, <laughs> dancing on your knees at the disco on Saturday night probably doesn't help how your knees feel when you actually come to row the next day. But <laughs> great. <laughs> Excellent. I'll tell you my story. Landa, uh, we were had a, an international women's athlete um, who swept, swept all, Dot Blackie. She was a lovely, lovely woman. Anyway, she turned up to Landa, and those are the days where you get point, you accumulate points uh, during rowing. And but rowing points or sculling points were then different, and she got zero um, rowing points. They've changed it now. If you remember, you come in international, you get 12 automatically, but she basically got zero. So an international athlete, she could start, and she actually rode senior three, which is above novices. So next category out. And she'd sat, sit on the start, and rather than start in the start position, she started in the finish position, which is very, very stable. And the first time, the starter said, um, do you want to come forward to the start position? And she said, no, no, I'm, I'm quite happy here. Thank you. And they'd start and she'd set off and she couldn't accelerate, but she rode at one rate, but very, very powerfully. So she'd always go down on the start and she'd always row through them on the finish and ended up winning. And you think that's what uh, regatta should be about. The weird and our dog ate her chocolate cake, which is not a matter, but um, <laughs> She did forgive us eventually. <laughs> That's Patrick, what do, what do the coming months uh, shape up for, uh, like for you? What what are the highlights and headlines for you? I mean, you're in France. You're I'm clearly, in France. How long have you been there? We've been, we're in year 11 now. Oh, um, right. uh, down, we're in southwest France, not we're near Tarbes, the nearest major town. But if you drew a line from Toulouse towards uh, Baritz, we're sort of halfway between the two. Um, and uh, accepting today, normally the weather is excellent and we're an hour from skiing. Uh, the, the pace of life is slow. You have to get used to the fact that two Frenchmen will meet each other on the road, driving in different directions, and will stop and have a conversation. And you draw up behind them and they don't instantly stop the conversation and drive off. They draw their conversation to an end <laughs> wave a thank you at you and then gently drive off. <laughs> um, so, George, as far as I can know, I've, I'm back in the UK in August. Uh, my son and I are going up to the Lake District um, because we go off-roading in uh, Land Rovers um, because there's a pass, pass up there, Gates Path Pass, where they you get a permit and they only open it, I think, about four times a year. Uh, and from anybody who's off-roading and who's listening to this will know, one of the joys is if you're driving up steep slopes on shale and rock, 
which is technically very, very difficult, but also it's tremendous fun. And then in September, uh, we're all going to Greece to go sailing in Greece. Uh, my wife is a qualified um, RYA uh, helms person, yacht master, blah, blah, blah. I'm competent crew. And um, the Greeks are wonderful. The food's cheap. And the sailing is great, great fun. Excellent. And I, and I get sunburned again. <laughs> we, we appreciate the time you've given us uh, tonight, Patrick, and lovely that we can meet up and talk through because it's an area I know null and voiders are always saying to us, you've never had anybody from or you've not done this. Or, and, and we do our best to try and follow that. But to have somebody with a combination of talents that you've got and experience and great sense of humour, Patrick, um, really enjoyable. So thank you very much for your time. And clearly from what you've just been saying, the next few months are going to be really interesting as well. Andy? Yeah, no, thank you. And sounds like an exciting summer. That uh, that off-roading sounds, uh, yeah, quite exciting, but also at times I think quite uh, quite uh, nerve-shredding. <laughs> it, 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 it does have its moments. It's when you think, I've only actually got two wheels on the ground at the moment, and that's not quite how it's supposed to be. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Can I just throw one thing back at you, just for the future? You were talking yeah. about Tiger Woods. Um, is there not something that says there are, is a time when you need to get athletes to recognise that they need to retire? I, I think that's a very valid point. If you mm. take, I'm, I'm from Manchester, Manchester United supporter, and take Cristiano Ronaldo's performance before he left, that sums it up a treat because there is a wonderful, wonderful talent as has been and he won't accept that his, uh, you know, he's not the player he was and he takes it out on everybody and everything. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I, I no, I totally agree with you on it. It's the hardest thing, of course, to do when oh, you've been at the very top. Amazing. But you look at the people who've done it. I mean, I always th think of Gary Lineker as someone who got out at the top at the right time. And if you're going to drop names, Andy Murray, please, Andy, just stop. You know, the injuries you're carrying, the injuries you're still get. I was a get out at the top. Yeah. Don't get out when you're falling off the other side. Saying on, we'll just get, misquote yeah. it, rage against the dying of the light, don't they? <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we, we'll get you on and do a get a grip on it, uh, Patrick, in the future. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very much for your input tonight. And. Mm -hmm. uh, really enjoyed it and hopefully we can find an opportunity to talk to you in the future. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Cheers, Thanks, Cheers, Patrick. Brother. Take care. Now, wasn't that good? Uh, excellent input from uh, an unusual combination of, of uh, sporting background tonight from Patrick Lockley. Hope you enjoyed it. We certainly did. And that brings us to the close of uh, Null and Void for this week. Um, yeah, large variety of sports yet again, um, and a great guest. Great combination. Really enjoyed that. And make sure you're with us next time, uh, next week, at a time that suits you and a place that suits you, because that's, as we say, how podcasts work. We love all of that. Let's hear from you as well. Criticism or support. We love it either way. Thank you very much indeed. See you later. Bye. Cheerio, folks. Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan. Together, they don't add up to much. 
If you have a sports story, you can contact the team on n and v at forthenow.co.uk.